Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trenton and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. All right, so uh, welcome everyone to Red War Revelry. Uh, Today we step out of the uh, Revolutionary War era into the War of 1812. Um, the goal, of course, um, is to bookend kind of this the revolutionary era of uh, the founding of the United States. So a few weeks ago, we did French and Indian War. Now we have the um, uh, American, or the War of 1812, excuse me. So uh, without further ado, let me introduce the three uh, noted historians that have uh, compromised their integrity and honor <laughs> for the war of We have Dan Davis, uh, historian, um, and former uh, National Park Ranger. You're going to see a connection with the Park Service here, the former Rangers or Rangers uh, down. So Daniel Davis, um, historian and with former of the National Park Service, George the Best, um, as he wanted to be uh, known, is also a uh, Park Ranger and historian. And then uh, Jim as well uh, with the snazzy bow tie. So he has now won the honors on the best dress for the Rebel War Revelry. So uh, thank you, gentlemen, for joining. Um, I know each one of you guys have uh, different eras of expertise. Only reason I'm here is I'm from Baltimore, and Fort McHenry was jammed down our throats as a kid. And I just wanted to make sure that uh, Fort McHenry um, and that other Armistead actually did something good um, instead of just die and attack and pick a charge. There you go, Mark Malloy. I brought in the Civil War within the first three minutes and 18 seconds. So, uh, but so War of 1812, uh, what's Let's start off with an easy question. What's one thing somebody who knows nothing about the War of 1812 should realize uh, why it's important, not just that we fought over tariffs or whatever? So we'll start with, let's start with the best, George, up in the corner. Well, I mean, I think an important thing is to realize just the little things in our lives that, or in some cases, I guess, big, that it's still a part of it, you know, you you go to a baseball game, you are singing a song that, you know, we call it our national anthem. It is about a battle in the War of 1812. The rockets red glare, the bombs bursting in air. That is the British bombarding a fort in Baltimore. It's the, originally called the defense of Fort McHenry. So that's still, you know, something that we keep with us. We may not always realize what, you know, the actual words mean. You know, of course, we have our bigger meanings with that song, vary from individual to individual, but the basic uh, literal meaning is British bombing this fort. So there is this big, imp- you know, this daily impact with us, but also has, I think, a bigger impact um, that is not as easy to just kind of say with one word the way like the Civil War, slavery's over, we're still one country. Revolutionary War, we're independent, rah, rah, fireworks. Um, the War of 1812 is a little more... Uh, messy but it does have a big impact in terms of like professionalizing the army opening up um a new wave of westward expansion kind of solidifying or at least in the american psyche uh kind of american uh 
Um, sure. Uh, so I was uh, playing off of two points that George made. Uh, one was the uh, professionalization of the United States Army, <clears throat> and the second was uh, the focus of the United States. Um, I, I would argue that the United States Army, uh, as we know it today, is born uh, on the plains of, of Chippewa uh, in 1814 during the long, uh, brutal winter of 1813 to 1814 as Winfield Scott uh, is whipping uh, his first brigade into shape. Uh, it's, it's the War of 1812, which really serves as the reminder to the United States that they must maintain a professional standing army, an officer and NCO corps that can be expanded and, and built upon with volunteers uh, in, in times of, of, of crisis. You know, after the American Revolution, after the professionalization of the Continental Army during Valley Forge, um, the, the, the army is, is, is done away with. And, and you have the, the, uh, the arguments throughout successive gener um, uh, administrations of, uh, you know, the, the threat of a standing army. How big should the military establishment be? Oh, we'll rely on the militia. Uh, and the War of 1812 um, uh, proved the lie that you, you can't rely on on a standing militia. As, as good as they are uh, in several battles during the War of 1812, you have to have a professional standing army with professionally trained NCOs uh, and, and officers. West Point exists before the War of 1812, but it's an engineering school. Um, after this, um, you, you see you see a change. And then the the, the second point is from the establishment of the, the United States through the Treaty of Ghent in 1815, the focus of the United States um, is across the Atlantic. It's, it's what is happening um, between Great Britain and France um, around the globe is drawing the United States uh, in uh, and, and how they avoid or negotiate those conflicts. Uh, and it's also north to Canada, uh, the British colony that Americans uh, and, and British colonists uh, alike have an understanding after the American Revolution that this is not going to continue. These two nations cannot peacefully uh, coexist because their definition of democracy and representative government um, is so radically different to them. Uh, and the War of 1812 ends um, you know, external threats to the existence and independence of the United States and allows the United States to then look internally and focus its, its gaze on westward expansion um, and all of the internal conflicts that that's going to uh, uh, inflame. Okay. Well, uh, great summary. Now we won't make you do it a third time, I promise. Only, only twice. So, uh, and Dan, um, carry out uh, that important War of 1812, that one thing people should know. Yeah, I think it goes back to something that Jim mentioned as far as uh, the country looking westward. They look westward uh, for their, uh, from a political perspective. One of the, the, the biggest name that comes out of the War of 1812 is Andrew Jackson. Jackson's a Westerner. He's a transplanted uh, North Carolinian, South Carolinian who eventually settles in uh, West Tennessee. And he comes out of the War of 1812 as the hero of the military hero of the United States. And he's on a platform that had uh, previously been held by George Washington. And America's, uh, I think, to a certain degree, was looking for a hero. And Jackson uses that political, that military uh, uh, capital that he had built up to uh, launch himself to the White House 14 years after his famous victory at New Orleans. And he, in turn, launches the age of Jackson, the age of the common man. And those ideals tend to uh, uh, carry America through the 1820s into the 1830s and even play it more so into the uh, sectional crisis that begins to arise following uh, the war of Mexico. And if there's one person that comes out of the War of 1812 that anybody should know about, it's Andrew Jackson. And there's no other person that really, beyond Winfield Scott, influences the American uh, military, but also influences American politics in what becomes a very, very pivotal two to three decades leading up to the Civil War. So that um, we actually have, uh, now that we have the gauntlet laid of Andrew Jackson, the one person, someone to know out of the War of 1812, I guess I'll wade in, um, since it was my question, um, and say you also have, uh, I mean, kind of an emergence also of the U.S. Navy. Um, Initially, I mean, the Barbary Coast War, you have some of these naval captains coming of age. Um, there's actually, I think, a small monument on the U.S. Naval Academy uh, campus for the Barbary Coast. 
but I mean, even the Park Service uh, protects one of the sites um, up in um, Ohio. Um, uh, John Hazel, a faithful follower, has uh, mentioned that as well. Um, but uh, you also have, I mean, something that is the government takes forward is how easily Washington, D.C. Is, is taken. And then, okay, how do we stop that from happening? You have these major effort of what, the tiered forts and so forth. Um, but uh, of course, the one most uh, famous Fort McHenry uh, had been, uh, of course, established beforehand. Um, besides that, I mean, you have uh, the Navy, you have, um, the, you said, the creating of this permanent uh, kind of army. We have a initial question from Vanessa Smiley, and I'll throw this out to the group, is how much of a shockwave was it, if at all, for the U.S. government to realize at this time that they needed a permanent military force, army, navy, et cetera? Is there any vibrations to the halls of Congress? Yeah, I think so. Um, in eighteen in eighteen oh six, you know, um, Thomas Jefferson uh, is is working on getting through the Embargo Act. There's there's all these various things that lead up to the War of eighteen twelve. Uh, and, and one of the things that the United States government attempts to do uh, to bring France and Great Britain to heel uh, is to say, well, we're just not going to um, trade with you. Um, unfortunately, uh, while that becomes the law, um, there are many major ports throughout the North uh, that say, yeah, well, we're not really gonna, we're not really gonna follow that. Uh, and, and so they don't shut down the ports, uh, which leads to the passing of the 1807 Insurrection Act, uh, which empowers the federal government to use the regular United States military uh, in situations where the laws of the United States are not being enforced. Uh, and this was because the, um, in these ports and in, the, in these towns and in these states, you know, the local authorities uh, and the governors are not calling out the state militia. Uh, <clears throat> to enforce that. So therein lies uh, one of the issues with the state militia and thus the importance of a, of a professional standing army uh, is that the militia is an inherently political animal from the election of officers and companies and, and regiments to the appointing of uh, its officers uh, at the brigade division uh, level uh, and then at the state. You know, so if you have, if you have a state governor uh, that doesn't agree with the, the administration, um, they will not call out the militia. And indeed, uh, that happened throughout the war, the war of 1812. When, when President Madison made the call, uh, there were a few governors who said, no, not, not going to do it. Uh, and I think that was uh, um, a very um, important lesson that, uh, that Congress took away after the war. Mm -hmm. I think uh, adding on what Jim said, it's... Uh... It's a slow burn. Uh, it definitely picks up the pace during the War of 1812 because you are in a pitched war, but it's a slow burn. I mean, during the Washington administration, well, I mean, during the Articles of Confederation period, the 1780s, um, you do have a very teeny, tiny, minuscule excuse of a standing army. It's there, but it's not really worth talking about. It mans a couple forts and has a barracks in New Jersey, if the few details I remember, and then like 75% of it gets killed on the Wabash. Um, and then you have in the 1790s, the uh, Legion of the United States, kind of a reformed U.S. Army under Anthony Wayne. And that stays, um, it's not huge, but it's a, for America at the time, a decent sized standing force. And then and it continues to the Adams administration. We go almost to war with France. We raise a bigger army th that involves some uh, Navy fights here or there. But then Jefferson becomes the president and he basically slashes what army there wasn't and nothing. And then you have the Chesapeake Leopard affair in 1808 and Jefferson kind of forced into rebuilding the army a little bit. It's still not very big. A lot of the regiments he raises are under strength. Um, by the beginning of the war of 1812, it has, most people seem to say 7,000. The highest estimate I've seen is 10,000 and I'm leaning more toward the 7,000 number myself. Um, and then at the end of the War of 1812, although the army itself um, is quickly reduced back to a much smaller size, there is this strong realization of we need to beef up West Point, get out better quality officers. There is an effort to um, gr greatly improve the training of the professional troops on the field. Um, 
and I mean, Winfield Scott's on this big panel. I mean, Jim mentioned him earlier to uh, kind of redo how the Army is trained. They come out with a brand new manual that, with only a few minor changes, remains the standard until the 1850s when you start seeing rifles become the primary arm as opposed to muskets. Um, it's yeah. Like, yeah. I was going to say, George, I think the, the, the key is not the size mm -hmm. of, of, the, of the peacetime Army, but, but what that professionalization means. Uh, and I think um, for me, after the War of 1812, it's consistency. It's seeing generals like Winfield Scott, who started the war as a captain, ended the war as a brigadier general, carrying um, through with the army all the way up until the Civil War. Um, Jacob Brown continuing uh, in, in the American Army. Your, your, your naval heroes for, you know, while there were standing armies, you know, between the American Revolution and the War of 1812, uh, you had you had so much changeover um, within the within the officer corps. You had multiple overhauls of the army itself and its organization, its administration. To how is it even supplied? Um, and it, it's it's those things um, that after the war of eighteen twelve, uh, I, I think um, carry on the the logistics, the administrative uh, side of things, um, and then the the individuals. You know, that go on to remain in the army for 10, 20, 30 years, or the Navy that, that, that started as captains and end up as, as admirals uh, that, that really professionalize and maintain that institutional knowledge for the decades to come. Yeah, and I think also the part of it too is also necessity. We talked about uh, a little bit about how America looks westward after the uh, War of 1812. And as America expands, beyond the Mississippi River, there becomes a question of, okay, well, who is going to accompany these settlers westward? Who's going to patrol these new roads? He's going to build these new roads. Who's going to gar garrison these new uh, forts along uh, those routes? And uh, I think part of it too also becomes as a necessity when you start seeing many of the, uh, uh, the Dragoon regiments that are being formed in the uh, early 1830s, mid 18. Uh, so I think it's I think it's a combination of some of the other uh, many of the other factors we've already discussed. Now, uh, Dan, I, I'd like to take um, real quick, if it's okay, Philip. I wanted to take um, uh, an opportunity to throw out who I think um, most Americans should remember from the War of 1812, uh, and it's a young man who, ironically enough, is a civilian, so he's not a military hero. Um, I think Jackson gets enough credit for winning the Battle of New Orleans, becoming president. Everyone's always going to remember him. Um, but there is a very nondescript grave in Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C. for a uh, government clerk by the name of Stephen Pleasanton. Uh, and, and this young man uh, took it upon himself uh, to uh, save uh, as much of the government uh, records as he could. And it's to Stephen Pleasanton, uh, whom we owe uh, eternal gratitude for saving the Declaration of Independence. The Secretary of War walked by uh, saw what he was doing and said, why are you bothering doing this? The British aren't going to be coming to Washington. Uh, and, you know, I think he was 27, 28 at the time. Uh, and he's being ridiculed by the Secretary of War. You know, I would think most civil servants or, or government clerks would, would perhaps take pause uh, at having a cabinet level official um, upbraid them. But he's after, you know, Secretary of War walked on, he continued. Uh, and uh, if, if not for him, um, there would be an empty uh, frame at the National Archives. So Stephen yeah. Pleasanton, go, go visit him at the Congressional Cemetery. I like that. I want to build on that because we got a uh, question on what um, most, uh, from Mark Malloy, the biggest villain from the uh, War of 1812. Uh, of course, he also said greatest Ooh. hero, and we kind of answered that. Um, I mean, the this, this Secretary of War um, for the United States government, is it John Armstrong? I know it's Armstrong. I forget his first name. Um, but I mean, yeah, he doesn't think Washington DC is gonna be captured. Um, he actually is what like, replaced by Madison, I believe, right? Because uh, Monroe would be one of the only uh, one of the only cabinet officers that takes over two roles. And I think uh, Madison is actually one of the only two presidents shot at in time of war um, at the Bladensburg, um, the Battle of Bladensburg or the Bladensburg races. Um, so I mean, um, greatest, uh, should we do greatest villains? Should we get out all the softball questions first? So we have the greatest, <laughs> greatest villain. Um, I do want to say it's amazing that we have this, the um, professionalizing of the, um, the U.S. military, but I mean, from a native Marylander, the battle that we remember beside Fort McHenry is the battle of North, what, North Fort, North Point. Um, mm -hmm. The reason I remember that is I actually had an ancestor in the Baltimore militia that got called up and fought there. Um, 
I know he wasn't the one that shot Robert Ross because we're not that good of a shot. But um, and then of course New Orleans with what Jackson's able to do there. But um, um, so leaving that the biggest villain, uh, we have one comment that said it's Admiral Cockburn would be the biggest villain of the War of eighteen twelve. Um, well, that, that depends on your perspective. There were 4,000 enslaved African-Americans in the Chesapeake Bay who saw Cockburn as a, as a little savior, if not for Cockburn uh, and the British Navy in 1813 and 1814, they would not have been able to take their freedom and resettle in Canada, the Caribbean, or as um, several uh, hundred of them did, actually enlist uh, in the British armed forces and fight against their former enslavers. So, it, it all hinges on how you define villain uh, and what side you're on. Certainly from an American perspective, uh, Cockburn um, or Coburn as the British pronounced it, pronounced it but Cockburn as, as we Americans did, um, receives the, the lion's share of, of, of that approbation. I, I would have to say Armstrong um, of, of all the, the quote unquote villains of the War of 1812, I think he's the one uh, who resists rehabilitation the most um, by historians because he just does such a terrible job of preparing the nation uh, in 1813 and 1814 for invasion. When, when he appoints Winder um, to look over DC and, and Maryland, he, he sends his official communications to Winder, not by courier, uh, not by a military courier, uh, but by dropping it in the mail. Um, so there, there is something to Armstrong's personality as well as his ability that, that just makes him the villain, in my, my estimation. Yeah, and I, I'm going to agree with Jim on that. And just put that within context to everybody. You know, stop and think about that. Here is a president who sacks his secretary of war in the midst of war, an armed conflict. It's something you really can't see, despite the turnover that Lincoln had, you really can't see an Abraham Lincoln uh, replacing an Edwin Stanton in the course of the Civil War. So just to underscore that point a little bit about how uh, inept Ar uh, Armstrong was. But it was Armstrong, the War of 1812, Simon Cameron, but if he could get him to like Russia, he would have sent Armstrong off to Russia if he could. <laughs> um, Probably. Yeah. Um, well, no, I mean, yeah, it is un, it's un, unheard of. It's, um, and I mean, the change, as Lincoln says, change a horse in what midstream or or, or whatever the, the saying is. Let's stay away from the Civil War, the recent unpleasantness. Yeah. Um, uh, George, um, you got a villain or even a hero? We'll take it uh, either way. Well, um, I think, um, well, starting with the villain, since that's what we're on topic with, you know, we've talk about John Armstrong a little bit. I would like to point out that actually during the War of 1812, we go through three Secretary of Wars. The first one is William Eustace, who is, uh, well, Eustace is, uh, sounds very useless. similar to useless. So uh, yes. that's- Thank you. Wow. <laughs> yes. that, that pretty much sums up what he, he, he <laughs> micromanaged too much and was completely overwhelmed by having, by trying to manage a wartime army. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure he himself just threw up his hands and quit and then um, Armstrong had actually been a commissioned general in the army and then Madison tapped him to do the job and it, he I mean as much as he did very little to prepare the uh, Chesapeake Bay theater for a larger British force uh, which resulted of course in uh, DC turning crispy um, he did do a better job than Eustace and then James Monroe comes in and uh, fills both shoes so Mon Armstrong definitely gets some uh, deserves some flack for that we've already brought up uh cockburn coburn um who even some of his officers actually commented that we seem to be burning a lot of houses because there was one officer i think his name was uh gleig gleig i think yeah i believe it was him who commented you know we're supposed to go off and burn anything that's an armory or an arsenal or whatever and they come across a farmhouse with a duck gun in it. And they're like, oh, it's an arsenal, burn it. <laughs> and he's just kind of thinking, this isn't, this isn't cool, man. Um, but of course, he's heavily outranked. So he follows his orders and goes on. Um, but another uh, less well-known, he's not as like powerful a villain, so to speak, but kind of a slippery character that's worth bringing up and that I love uh, just kind of trashing on is James Wilkinson. Uh, oh, yes. U.S. Army General. Oh, yes. He was yes. he was receiving payments Ooh. from the government of Spain 
to uh, send them information uh, on the United States, which he apparently didn't provide a whole lot. He mostly just like getting the money. He was involved with Aaron Burr's big conspiracy to form a new Western country and then managed to weasel his way out of getting uh, in trouble for that. Um, he uh, purposefully put the U.S. Army, when a good chunk of it was in Louisiana after the Louisiana Purchase, in this horribly disease-ridden area of Louisiana. So a good chunk of it was dying of horrible illnesses, I think because he had property near there. Um, and he proved to be a pretty bad general on top of that. Well, yeah, the invasion of Canada in 1813. You know, let's wait to invade Canada until, uh, you know, the fall, because October's, you know, November in, in Upper Canada, beautiful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we see this during the Revolution. We see this during the War of 1812. Uh, anytime you have two generals that hate one another and they're responsible for combined operations, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Yeah, so the battles of Chautauqua and, and Chrysler's farm in 1813 are just, you know, that's definitely a low point. Uh, and I, I would say, you know, um, thank you for bringing up Wilkinson and, and we'll add Hampton to that mix um, of, of villains. And before you steal my thunder and go on to heroes, George, I, I'd like to get in there and say, of course, a hero of the War of 1812 has to be George Armistead, the commander of Fort McHenry, because his successful defense of the fort saved the city of Baltimore and 50,000 people, the third largest city uh, and port in the nation and inspired a national anthem. Um, I, I don't think it gets any better than that. You know, Jackson may have saved the city of New Orleans, but there was no national anthem written about that. A very nice song by Johnny Horton, I'll grant you, uh, but not quite Oh Say Can You See. Yeah, several good songs. Mm -hmm. You know, unless anybody wants to sing it, I'll give a few minutes if anyone wants to, can anyone sing this? Yeah, I remember as a kid having it on cassette. Um, I was a history nerd. My dad was a history nerd. He's like, oh, here's some music uh, to hoard in that one. And uh, then he sings the Bismarck, I think was the other one. Right, yep. Uh, yeah. Everything. But, um, I mean, um, so I guess so let's move on to, uh, so people remember um, Fort McHenry. People remember the Battle of New Orleans. Um, if there's another battle, I know we talked about uh, a few of them already, another engagement. Um, I've heard uh, someone mention River Raisin. Uh, someone, of course, mentioned uh, the battles on uh, Lake Erie. Um, yeah. Is it something somebody should know uh, or is um, a site that they should visit in that area, um, this side of the Canadian border, since we can't go through borders yet because of uh, the recent pandemic. So Definitely, uh, definitely Lake Erie, the Battle of Lake Erie. Um, which has a national park unit attached to it, and the Battle of Lake Champlain. Uh, one is in uh, 1813, the other is in 1814. Both of those are incredibly significant uh, to the overall course of the war. Had either of those been lost by um, the United States uh, Navy, um, the, the outcome of the war may have been very different, uh, or certainly would have proceeded differently. Control um, of, of the Great Lakes uh, uh, was, was critical um, for uh, safeguarding the United States from British invasion. Good. Um, does anyone want to add one of the, uh, another one? I'll, I'll jump in and then I'll, I'll throw it over to George. I'll jump in and I, I'm going to say the Tippecanoe battlefield in Indiana where you know, some historians tend to look at Tippecanoe as being one of the first engagements in the, or what's, uh, what takes place in, you know, today is Indiana, the old uh, Northwest Territory. Some historians look at Tippecanoe and William Henry Harrison's campaign in the old Northwest against Tecumseh and the Northwest tribes as sort of being the, the, the beginning of the war, so to speak, since Tecumseh really goes on to, and Harrison too, play a very prominent role throughout the the course of uh, the conflict. I think it's more, it's a forgotten battlefield to, uh, to I think a certain degree, but I think if, if for, from a historical perspective, if you're looking for one battlefield where the, the, the war began, Tippecanoe is probably going to be it, at least in my book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tippecanoe is definitely a big one. Um, probably another one I would throw out is the uh, Battle of the Thames, uh, or Thames if you're reading it. Um, you don't need to spell it out or Google it later. 
Um, all the British and Canadians called it the Battle of Moravian Town, kind of like the Civil War. We have Manassas and Bull Run. Um, and that one, you get um, huge American victory. William Henry Harrison, our uh, shortest serving president, although not there yet, a uh, big victory. And then one of the really big things come out of that, this is kind of already started happening during his uh, campaign um, to retake Detroit. Uh, but with the death of Tecumseh and the complete breakdown of British control of that chunk of uh, Canada, you see all of these tribes start to come in, uh, Native American tribes start to come in and negotiate these treaties with the United States that largely end up not being very favorable to them. And it's at least for the northern half of the western part of the war that really breaks uh, Native American resistance to westward expansion in what were the Northwest Territories um, and, until you start getting out into like Montana and the Dakotas. Um, and then the kind of the Southern version of that is the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. Andrew Jackson, um, literally the native, the native uh, peoples of the Creek Nation, or at least a portion of them are in a bend in the, I can't pronounce it river because I don't see it. Alapusa. Yes, that one. Um, and they, they have their line across the top here and Jackson comes in, they get stuck at the bend of the river, and it's the largest uh, death toll of uh, Native Americans in a single battle, from what I recall. Yeah. Um, and that basically ends the, the Creek uh, War, which kind of a mini war within the War of 1812, and that opens up all kinds of things for later on when Jackson's president, the Trail of Tears, and again, further westward expansion. It, it, it standing on the field at, at Horseshoe Bend um, is, I mean, it, it's the battlefield is unchanged. Uh, there, there's one, I think, one monument uh, in the wood line. Uh, there are two cannon, and then there are some white posts that mark uh, where the Red Stick Creeks had erected um, uh, in an entrenchment of, of, of sorts. And, uh, you know, to stand on that field and to contemplate what happened and how the the absolute destruction of the Red Stick Creeks there, you know, end, ended um, the Creek War in the South and how Jackson seized that moment to impose terms, not just on the, the Red Stick faction of the Creeks, uh, but on the peaceful uh, Creeks that had not participated in the war, um, who had tried to embrace quote unquote white civilization um, uh, through settling uh, on homesteads and farming, um, and how he later um, forcibly removed them all in the Trail of Tears. I mean, it's it is it is a tiny field, um, and 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 yet uh, the yeah, the impact of what happened there is looms so large um, for uh, the Creek Nation. Uh, it, it it it's truly. It's it's truly humbling to stand there. So absolutely, if you can ever get down to to, to Horseshoe Bend in in Alabama, do it. Another national park. Another national yes, park. amazing. You have pristine. Yeah. That's uh, one of the um, so Mark Malloy uh, has commented. What is the best battlefield to visit? So is it Horseshoe Bend? Um, this is most pristine original location. The Fort McHenry because of the the Star Spangled Banner. Is it Chalmette? So you can actually see. Steamboats rising above you down the. Mississippi. You know, I think maybe the easiest way to answer that is, what's the most disappointing? <laughs> the two most disappointing battlefields to visit uh, are are two of the largest battles of the war, uh, and one of them is is Chalmette and Lyon Jackson because you're standing there, it's Lyon Jackson. This is the Battle of New Orleans, and then you look up and off to the right, uh, and you see the levee and the ships going by. And it's just it's it's odd. Um, and then the, the Battle of Lundy's Lane, um, which was a brutal, nasty, knockdown, drag out fight, muzzle to muzzle uh, in the dark, uh, in, in Echo of Niagara, uh, or in, in Earshot of Niagara Falls. Um, it's gone. It, it's like the red light district for Niagara Falls. Uh, it, it's, it's really sad. Um, it, it, basically, Lundy's Lane is, is what I would say the Gettysburg of the War of 1812, and it's completely gone, completely 100%. Any, any markers or anything? Um, I mean, just asking from personal self, I've not been up to Niagara Falls, so 
Anything no, else? No, the, the best place that you can go to get any sense of it is uh, there's a cemetery there. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's been years since I was up there. I don't recall a marker. They've got a little bit, as you're going up Lundy's, Lundy's Lane is an actual road. Um, as you're going up it, they do have this like stone mural. And you remember going across into Canada with a friend of mine and the Canadian border guard asked us, uh, where are you going? And we were like, oh, and of course, we being the history nerds, we are Niagara Falls doesn't get mentioned once. We're like, oh, we're going to go to Fort Erie and Lundy's Lane. He's like, why are you going to Lundy's Lane? Yep. Yep. Imagine going to Gettysburg and driving down Emmitsburg Road and you're headed into town and on the right hand side uh, where the high water mark is, uh, it's just wall to wall buildings and it's a red light district, mm -hmm. uh, essentially, and run down. And then to the left um, is more of it with with the cemetery kind of broken up in there. I mean, that that is the equivalent of Lundy's Lane. It, it's it's heartbreaking. There, there is a nice monument in the cemetery for the British soldiers of the battle, and you, it is up on a hill, um, which is where a lot of the real ugly fighting took place. So you are on the site. Um, I believe some of the soldiers from there are buried in that cemetery. Um, and you do get a nice view from up there, but a lot of what you're seeing are people's backyards, this red light district, um, and uh, more camouflage than I never thought I would see outside ah. of Kentucky. Um, <laughs> And well, I, <laughs> since since we have uh, Dan Davis on the on the call, I'm going to throw out my pitch here. One of the best preserved battlefields of the War of 1812 is actually on the Eastern Shore. Uh, it's Cox Field. Yep. Um, um, uh, Sir Very Peter Spider-Man, uh, Sir okay. Peter Parker. That was actually his name. He was the captain of the HS uh, Menelaus. He uh, led some British Royal Marines and sailors on a night attack against a militia encampment, uh, which was around the Colk House. Uh, and the battle took place literally around 11, uh, uh, 12 a.m., 1 o'clock in the morning. A um, lot of confusion. Both sides claimed that they won. Basically, both sides kind of ran out of ammunition and then withdrew. Um, Peter Parker is, is killed. Um, but there was, you know, there was artillery, a uh, big, a nice stand-up fight uh, there for about an hour. And it's pristine. I mean, you go there on the eastern shore, the caulk house looks exactly like it did in 1815 farm fields all around so so dan if the if the american battlefield trust can get in there and get some easements or something um <laughs> that would be amazing it, it well, is there, probably the most pristine battle field of the war of 1812 yeah i am very familiar with coxfield there is a nice monument there awesome. uh, yes. uh and the the, the shame about the, the the thing that kind of dis is disappointing about coxfield uh as jim mentioned is very well preserved looks just like it did at, at the time of the battle but at the same time, it's it's a very very small American victory in the midst of all this chaos. As you know, after the British are, have essentially for the last two or three years have been running roughshod through the Chesapeake region, they burned Harvard de Grace, they burned obviously uh, Washington, they've chased President Madison out of the Capitol, and it's this tiny little American victory that nobody ever talks about because it gets sandwiched in with the burning of Washington and then the great event at in Baltimore with the defense of uh, 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 Fort McHenry. Uh, I have to throw this out. Is this uh, the same Peter Parker of the American Revolution as well? Is this the same naval guy no. who went into Charleston? No. no. Okay. He's he's a young man. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I don't quote me on this, but I think he's in his early 30s, late 20s. Yeah. Yeah. I think George knows, right, George? I think I th I think he, he had a an it was either his father or his uncle or something that was like this big admiral, like Sir Hyde Parker or something like that. I thought uh, there was a yeah, Peter Parker or something in the 1776. The there's first probably one. a connection. Yeah, yeah. There, there, yeah, there's a, there is, yeah. He was Sir Peter Parker, so. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know, I mean, um, I mean, I know he's not Spider-Man, but other than that, I didn't know what the, the connection was. So uh, one of the things that I, I want to throw this out and I've heard um, uh, is, about the burning of Washington. Obviously, they come in. Um, there's rumors about whether it's uh, retribution for the burning of York and by American forces, or whether that the British weren't going to touch civilian things until somebody took a pot shot at the, the British line. Um, can we bust this myth open? What uh, what is it? Does either any of the historians here know exactly what happened when uh, Robert Ross's men marched down into D.C.? Does is it provoked? or is it just the fruits of conquest? So my own take is, well, one, 
uh, you know, York gets thrown around a lot. A less well-known one that the British also brought up a lot was the burning of uh, Newark. Newark, yep. if you're from New Jersey, I guess, uh, which is this community that was uh, outside of Fort George in Canada, which the Americans were occupying. Uh, the American commander there abandoned the, the fort, uh, turned out all the families in the middle of a Canadian winter. Um, and having lived up on the Great Lakes for six years, it gets cold. Um, and uh, just turn them out of their houses and burn the town. Um, the British were calling that for retribution. However, I am also inclined to think that based on, uh, you know, that may have been, you know, some of the official stuff, but also, and Jim, please jump in, but uh, with the amount of uh, burning Coburn uh, seemed to enjoy doing, uh, or caught <laughs> up through uh, the, uh, the Chesapeake, um, I, I don't, I don't think uh, he, he needed much of an excuse to go uh, start the DC barbecue there. He was uh, ready and raring to go, and these uh, provided convenient excuses and uh, cover. Well, so a couple things. Um, one, Coburn was not the commanding admiral uh, in the Chesapeake Bay in um, August of 1814 when the burning of Washington took place. Um, that was Sir Alexander Cochrane. Uh, and, and Cochrane had shared uh, with Ross communications that he had he had been um, getting from high command about um, the um, you know Newark and, and, and York and and basically had had told Ross that you know the gloves are coming off right this isn't this isn't a time um, to be overly uh, gentlemanly uh, if if you will um, Cochrane wanted to lay a, a heavy hand. And a decisive hand, uh, if, if possible. So when Ross is marching to Washington, he's got Cockburn there um, as um, kind of the eyes and ears of the Navy. So when the Army's on board the, the, the fleet, the Navy's in charge. When the Army's on land, the Army or Ross is in charge. But Coburn's going there to kind of whisper into Ross's ear and make sure he doesn't do anything um, untoward, um, or in, in this case, back out. Um, which he, he thought about doing, uh, not once, but twice, um, uh, over two different nights. And Coburn took uh, Ross uh, aside and kind of walked with him and convinced him, hey, I've been in the Chesapeake Bay for the whole summer of 1813 and most of 1814, and I can go wherever I want, and do whatever I want. There's no American army that's going to suddenly pop out uh, and keep us from getting into Washington, D.C. We can do this. Um, so you get the sense, and I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, but you get the sense that um, Coburn or Cockburn had in mind this operation against Washington early in 1814, based off of his previous experience. Um, Ross pushes the army, pushes the army. When they engage the Americans at Bladensburg, he only engages the American army uh, with a third of his force. It's actually a very reckless attack um, against uh, a numerically superior foe. Um, fortunately for Ross, he's victorious. I think when they march into Washington, you have to keep in mind Ross's words are ringing with Cochrane's admonition to, to lay a heavy hand, Coburn's constant whispering, we can do this. He's just fought a battle. He was lucky to have won and he suffered a lot of casualties. Uh, he's been actively campaigning in the field for several days. He's exhausted. Everyone's dehydrated. They're marching into Washington. And a couple people take some pot shots at him. Um, if he didn't have it in mind to start torching um, at that point, you know, uh, probably the, the exhaustion and the synergy of all that stuff uh, in the moment led to the decision. So to really, uh, it's, it's interesting just to add on to that and just put it into perspective. Uh, you know, it, it's really you know, Cocker and Coburn, uh, I think they're looking for that uh, knockout blow to the American uh, psyche, that knockout. Uh, knockout punch to really turns the tables uh, from a diplomatic standpoint, from a military standpoint, in the direction of the British. And from an, from an American perspective, too, it's the second time in 37 years that a British army has marched into a, and occupied a capital of the United States. And I think that kind of gets lost as well, that, you know, for the second time in two wars and a little under 40 years that a British army occupies an American capital. That, that's a very good point, Dan. Uh, and one thing that I have yet to see in anything written about the burning of Washington and the War of 1812 is a discussion about 
how Madison reacted to this by not doing something. Uh, so Madison often takes it on the nose for being a weak um, president. What I find very fascinating is, is he has the power to um, basically in, invoke the 1807 Insurrection Act, suspend habeas corpus. He could have done what Jackson did in New Orleans. He could have done what Abraham Lincoln will do in 1861. There is a foreign army marching at will through Maryland, laying waste to the capital of the United States. And yet, James Madison does not suspend the writ of habeas corpus or declare martial law. Um, so all of you out there listening, if you are currently in school and looking for a bachelor or master's thesis, that's it. There it is. What is also what's also interesting to that is that you know after uh, uh, Madison, the first lady, uh, eventually evacuate the capital. What I find interesting is that within days, uh, uh, the first lady of the United States, Dolly Madison. Uh, I mean, and we're talking three, four days. Uh, she's back in Washington D.C. She's just staying at the executive mansion. She's staying, I believe, at uh, her sister's home. Uh, but I, I find it interesting that how just. We look at this, the burning of Washington, the occupying of Washington by the British Army, is just this uh, almost a seminal event in the War of 1812. But at the time, it's very nonchalantly, people are coming back into the city very, very quickly after the British leave. Well, there, 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 there was um, kind of a, a revolt in Congress. A, a lot of, of congressmen wanted to take this opportunity to get the Capitol out of that godforsaken swamp of D.C. Mm -hmm. and move it. Um, back to, to New York. Um, but Madison's leadership um, uh, and his steady hand after the, the burning pre prevented that. Yeah. So we, uh, I mean, a lot of amazing moments uh, during the war. It's a very small war, a lot of very small battles, um, and, and yet with far reaching, far reaching consequences. So we have a question. So we brought up Dolly Madison. We have a few questions about Dolly. Um, is, uh, is she the one of the unsung heroes of the uh, War of 1812? Did um, she actually save some of the items in the White House? Um, is there a, a good story behind that? Um, of course, we always hear her saving, what, the Gilbert Stewart portrait of George Washington, uh, but she didn't save dinner, apparently. Dinner stayed on the table. <laughs> uh, what, what is there any truth? And um, so we rate Dolly Madison up there in the list of great first ladies. Well, Dolly Madison, um, I forget the details of the story, so I'm not going to get too much in depth of it. Um, but I do, I have heard it said that it was actually one of the Madison's um, enslaved people who actually is the one who saw the Gilbert Stewart painting, but I don't know the details, so I'm not going to delve into that one too much. If either of you two uh, know it, please jump in. But Matt, I think Dolly deserves kind of a little more credit, not for just saving one painting, but actually being. Um, James Madison is uh, not the most sociable of people. He's a nerd, a uh, bit of a <laughs> Dolly Madison is not. She's a socialite. So if you need schmoozing done, Dolly throws a big party, invites the big wigs and be like, hey, you should listen yeah. to my incredibly intelligent and very uh, diminutive husband here and hear what he has to say. And then I'll explain it in normal people speak later, have some wine, vote for whatever he wants. I'm ex exaggerating a little bit there, but that's kind of the gist of a big role she played. She's the the one uh, doing a lot of the more like socializing, getting people together. She, she was and, the social center of Washington, D.C. during the Madison administration, no question. And and she, um, many historians, you know, would, will say that she basically invented the role of the, uh, of the first lady. And you have to also keep in mind what Washington, D.C., was like and what it looked like uh, back during this time period. It's it's not much at all. Um, there's really nothing else to do, uh, and so everyone wants an invitation to a soiree hosted by Dolly Madison. Um, interesting side note: Dolly's favorite ice cream, oyster ice cream. Uh, we actually made it at Fort McHenry. I did not try it. Several colleagues did, uh, and they did confirm that it is as disgusting as it sounds. However, in 1814, oyster ice cream was all the rage. 
Oyster ice cream. So Ooh. there we go. Uh, I never thought we'd be adding oyster and ice cream to Rev War Revelry. So you never know where these are going to go. Um, and, uh, we tend to get closer to the end here. Um, there's a few questions uh, I want to ask in uh, some of our comments as well is, um, I guess we kind of answered this already, the lasting impact of the War of 1812. We'll kind of skip that. But uh, since we all are, you can see, besides Dan, and I know he has an extensive library, you can all see books behind us. Uh, there's one book someone should pick up on the War of 1812. And I recently picked up William Davis's new one uh, about the, the Battle of New Orleans. Is there one book someone should pick up on the War of 1812? Civil War of 1812 by Alan Taylor. That's, that's a great one. And uh, to, to Phil's point, I just actually got through not too long ago, William C. Davis's book on New Orleans. It's excellent. I uh, highly recommend it. Um, I would probably, if you're looking for sort of a, a good high-level overview that you can get through and probably four or five days, say, of work week, I would say Walter Borneman's War of 1812 is a good starter. Kind of a similar vein to that, um, Don Hickey's book on the War of 1812 is a great one if you're just going to read one book and then move on from it. That's a good one. Gives a good overview. Um, if you want the more in-depth military stuff, John Mann's book is also good, although it, it's a little, it's dated. It came out in the 70s, but it's solid overview. Um if you live in the Chesapeake Bay area, another Alan Taylor book you should read is The Internal Enemy. Um, I It is in my office at Harper's Ferry. Oh. It looks like Jim's pointing out, yes, that is an <laughs> excellent book. Very good. Um, it deals with um, the Chesapeake Bay and many, it focuses on a lot of uh, African-American history, but definitely uh, worth getting a very good sense of what's going on in the Chesapeake Bay, Virginia especially, but also uh, can be said also of DC and Maryland. Yeah, and another another good book is the Perilous Fight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that covers um, the Battle of Baltimore and the destruction of Washington D.C. Yeah, and I'll throw out one more that uh, is written by an author that I think many of us know more from his um, books on the American Revolution. That's uh, John Buchanan's Jackson's Way, Andrew Jackson and People of the Western Waters, and Buchanan takes Jackson pretty much from his birth. Uh, the way up to and after uh, just directly after the Battle of New Orleans it covers it does a really good job covering Andrew Jackson during that time frame and again uh, John Buchanan is one of the preeminent American Revolution historians out there so here so I held up um, Alan Taylor's the Civil War of 1812 but I didn't get I didn't make my pitch um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do that now um, here's why I there all the books that have been mentioned um, should be in your library and you should read them uh, and I will admit that the Civil War of 1812, um, uh, it, it's not a, a traditional narrative history of a, of a campaign or, or, or a battle. Um, it can be a little heavy at times. Um, but here's why I think it is the superior uh, book at the moment on the War of 1812. And that is because it, it, it basically begins at the close of the American Revolution. Uh, and it links um, the American Revolution to the War of 1812 and how the War of 1812 um, is the result of, of what is an unfinished conflict, right? Um, after Yorktown in 81 and the Treaty of Paris in 83, we think, oh, great, okay, we have we go on, we create a constitution, we elect a president, uh, and, and, and things are grand. Um, and the War of 1812 takes place because of the Napoleonic Wars. Well, it's, it's as I think George said, a slow burn. All of these issues uh, that are not addressed by the Treaty of Paris, um, all of these issues that linger in the American psyche, how can the United States with its understanding and version of democracy peacefully coexist with the British colony of Canada to the north with their different version of, of democracy? How is that, how is that possible? Um, and, and Taylor walks through that. Um, and he also shows that as a, as a very young nation, um, there are a lot of internal uh, um, divisions uh, and how you see Americans settling in Canada that are gonna fight against uh, their old nation. Um, Irish immigrants on both sides that are gonna end up, you literally have brother fighting brother in, in some instances. And, and so you can see during the War of 1812 um, and also in his book, The Internal en Enemy, uh, the sectional conflict, the, the seeds of the uh, American Civil War uh, that come later on. Um, so yeah, I think uh, Taylor's book is great because it, 
he talks about how the War of 1812 hinges on this key concept of the Republic's citizen and the King's subject, uh, and how the, the um, issues that led to the War of 1812, um, specifically impressment, that every time the British forcibly removed an American citizen off the deck of an American ship, uh, an Irish immigrant who had been born, say, in, in, in Ulster and settled in New York, the, the British are saying that that British subject does not have the right to become an American citizen. Uh, and in a way, um, by seizing that man, it's an act of counter-revolution. And by defending that, uh, that individual's right to leave Great Britain uh, uh, and come to the United States and become a citizen, we are, uh, in effect, reenacting uh, the American Revolution, which was, was so interesting to me that um, even right after the American Revolution, that um, Americans were, were or, or could be thinking in, in, in those terms. Oh, that's, uh, I've actually got um, both of those books, all my, all my books, that I literally just put up. Now, for those who don't know, for the last few weeks, I've been had a white wall behind me. I've been blasted by everyone on Rev War Revelry because I didn't have a library up. But now I have my library up behind me. Um, now I just need to start reading some of the new editions. Um, Amazon has been not my best friend during uh, this recent pandemic. But um, as we near the end here, um, I'd like to wrap up. Uh, if there's a final point that everyone uh, would want to make from the War of 1812, something we didn't cover, something we should maybe cover in the next Rev War Revelry, if we can uh, entice you guys to solid your reputations again by being part of this uh, the group, but um, so I'll start. George is on my top left, um, so we'll leave, we'll do George the best um, first there. Um, so uh, George, take it away. One final point about the War of 1812. So I think you know a lot of what we've been saying. Kind of, I think what I hope everyone watching kind of takes away from this is that this is a uh, far more important conflict than your uh, high school textbook would uh, lead you to believe. With its uh, one line mention of uh, Fort McHenry in New Orleans, zip, 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 slavery, civil war, yay. Um, it's has, and although, you know, like I, I said earlier, um, although it doesn't have as clear cut of, uh, the causes take a lot longer to list off and the effects take a lot longer to list off, they are incredibly significant. And also something we haven't really brought up is that although it's uh, memory in uh, modern American psyche is uh, kind of faded away to, uh, New Orleans and the uh, Star Spangled Banner, for most of the 19th century, it is a big part of uh, what Americans look back to. Um, you know, they refer to the veterans of 76 along with the veterans of 1812 and their toasts on the 4th of July. They have tons of, of course, the veterans are still alive for a good chunk of that, but it does play this huge role in how Americans um, kind of talked about it. And they, and what we can argue whether it really was or not, but Americans at the time definitely, and they use this language, saw it as a second American revolution, or at least finishing that first one and kind of establishing we are independent and we will do our own thing and then, then look west and then we get go west young man and that has its own consequences. Um, a lot of bad, some good, and we end up sea to shining sea for better or worse. And a lot of that, I think, begins June 18th, 1812. So actually, just a few days from now, we're getting to the anniversary. You should uh, read a book on 1812 on, uh, I think it's just a few days from now, yeah. They start running together, right? So uh, Jim, Dan, either uh, you two want to jump in next here? Yeah, I'll just tag on a little bit to what George said. And I, the War of 1812 to me is the United States is this young nation it's finally starting to step out on its own it's it it takes two wars but it steps out from uh the shadow of big brother great britain and after the war the united states is the united states there's this you know, often quoted uh, 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 uh line from a newspaper shortly after the end of the war that, uh, that uh, the newspaper editor comments who would not want to be an american i think Yes. The War of 1812 symbolizes the United States coming into its own and stepping out for the first time onto uh, no, not national, but an international stage. 
Good. 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 No. <laughs> um, so I think um, what I what I would like to see um, um, a topic of this moving forward would be the, the a stronger connection uh, or or examination of the Rev War to the War of eighteen twelve, and um, I look at you know a lot of uh, historians would say that you know the, the revolution. Um, you know, to understand the revolution, obviously, you have to go back and you have to look at the French and Indian War. Uh, and, you know, if the French and Indian War starts in 1754, you look at the end of the War of 1812, 60 years later, um, as kind of the, the coda to the conflict that began um, back when we were still colonies uh, and, and fighting the French. Uh, all three of those conflicts uh, accomplish um, specific ends um, and then leave certain um, threads uh, that, that aren't tied up uh, very neatly. Um, certainly for um, the institution of slavery, the War of 1812, specifically in, in the Chesapeake, um, uh, is, is, is fraught with consequences. 4,000 individuals, you know, uh, escape and, and, and gain their freedom. Uh, and yet those who remain uh, are, are faced with the, the white fear that uh, exists after the War of 1812, where the British um, so vividly showed uh, that a foreign force, you know, coming into the country uh, would have people who would be very willing to show them uh, how to get around um, uh, and, and, and attack. Um, I think states like uh, Virginia uh, and, and, and Georgia specifically, uh, who felt the hand of the British the hardest uh, in this regard, you know, they called out to the federal government repeatedly for aid and none came. Um, no federal troops, no U.S. warships. Um, so for Virginia and Georgia uh, in particular, the War of 1812, uh, the object lesson there was you can't rely on the federal government. They're not going to protect you physically. Uh, and then um, as they saw, you know, enslaved uh, uh, individuals as property, they're not going to protect our property. Um, so the War of 1812, in that respect, sharpened the, 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 the sectional divide um, that would later explode into the Civil War. Uh, and then for, for Native Americans, you know, if, if the United States wants to claim that it won the war and the British wants to claim uh, that they don't remember the War of 1812, um, the, the Native Americans certainly lost. Um, both the Tecumseh Confederacy in the North and the West and the Red Stick Creeks in the South. Um, the War of 1812 broke the back of any Native American resistance east of the Mississippi uh, and ushered in um, multiple new states, two of which were Alabama and, and Mississippi. Um, we've already talked about the professional military. Uh, and then uh, Dan very rightly pointed out this new sense of American unity. Um, I think that, you know, when you look at all of the Union imagery in 1861, defend the Union, rush to preserve the Union. This, this concept, this idea of Union is not something that dates necessarily back to 1776 or 1781, um, but uh, more recently to 1814 and, and to 1815. And so that, that's the irony of the War of 1812, I think, is that you see the, um, the, the sectional differences hardening uh, and becoming sharper in focus. At the same time, you see this overarching idea of, of union um, coming into play. All right, now, now we'll, I mean, I'll try to jump in with my limited knowledge here on the, the War of 1812. You do see that American identity and I'm um, always looking for like parallels or connections. I mean, out of the War of 1812, I mean, you have um, shortly after James Monroe, the era of good feelings, you have I think Monroe is what one elector away from becoming unanimously elected. Um, you know, I think it's someone in what the New England states voted for someone else. Um, but you also, uh, Jim was saying, you have that first. I mean, the Missouri Compromise, 1820. You start seeing the American identity, the Native American or the Indian Removal Act that will come. So we remember all these things, but we don't remember the, the War of 1812 specifically. But remember what kind of came out of uh, this this engagement as well. Um, Obviously, too, if uh, growing up a little bit in Europe, it's, um, I mean, England might have forgotten about it because they're dealing with this little Frenchman that was running around Europe at the time. 
um, Napoleon, um, and I mean, I've been to uh, Waterloo and so forth that happens when, and you see uh, parallels from both sides uh, of the Atlantic. But um, I mean, we definitely talked more about than what's our textbooks. I remember in uh, elementary, middle, high school, uh, it was only Fort McHenry and Andrew Jackson for a while. I think both of them were at the same place. So I'm glad we unpacked that uh, here in the last hour. Um, but uh, with that, I'd, I'd like to uh, uh, thank all you gentlemen for joining us uh, here on Red War Revelry. Uh, this is the RW Roundtable uh, with Emerging uh, Red War. Uh, we'll be back next Sunday with a topic undisclosed yet, but uh, sounds like we should probably do another one on the War of 1812, at least the connections between the American Revolution and, and the War of 1812 itself. So um, for George, Jim, and Dan, thank you, gentlemen, for giving up uh, uh, time on your Sunday to talk about this war. Thanks for giving us books to add to the bookshelves that are behind us. Um, and so with that, we are signing off. We'll see you next Sunday. Uh, and thanks again for joining us here on Rev War Revelry.